Welcome to Over the Counter, a podcast from Informa's Pharmaceutical Insights Publication. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, reporter for Informa's health, beauty, and wellness trade newsletter in the U.S. Every episode, we will be speaking to an expert in the global cosmetics, dietary supplements, or OTC medication industries about key issues and market trends. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Ryan Nelson, Managing Editor of Informa's HVW Insight and MedTech Insight about sustainability within the world of cosmetics. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Hannah. Of course. Happy to have you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about sustainability within the beauty industry. But before we jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about your role here at Informa? Sure. So I am editor-in-chief of HBW Insight and MedTech Insight at Informa. Um, so I oversee those publications and still try to get some writing in here and there. Um, my background, I guess I started with the company. Um 2004 uh, and started writing in uh, about medical devices for the gray sheet, which has now sort of been folded into what is now uh, MedTech Insight. Um, but uh, I did that for a few years and then I moved over to the Rose Sheet, writing about cosmetics regulatory issues primarily. Um, and then Rose Sheet was eventually also folded into HBW Insight. So that's sort of the, the pathway that got me here. Um, but um, yeah, very excited to be talking today about uh, about beauty sustainability. And, um, and thank you for uh, heading up this episode of Over the Counter. It's my pleasure. Um, so yeah, let's just jump right into it. Can you talk a little bit about the biggest drivers of the sustainability movement within the industry? Yeah, so it's a big conversation. Um, there are multiple drivers of the sustainability movement. Uh, I think you have to start with consumers. Uh, there's a general sense that consumers are increasingly interested in supporting and purchasing brands with sustainability profiles. Um, so consumers have concerns about global warming, plastic pollution, the general state of the planet, and they respond positively to brands that are making strides to reduce their impacts on the planet. There are plenty of consumer surveys out there indicating that uh, consumers are drawn to sustainable brands uh, and may even pay more for them. So this affinity for green brands and products um, is, is very prominent today and um, really we only saw it increase during the uh, COVID pandemic. So, you know, while consumers clearly want to patronize sustainable businesses, how they define sustainable isn't always so clear. Um, everybody kind of does it differently and uh, certain aspects of it are more important to some people than others. So that makes it all the more tricky for companies, I think, who are trying to meet consumers with these interests. To some extent, it sort of parallels and to some extent is an outgrowth, I think, of interest in recent decades in natural products, uh, which also have intuitive appeal with consumers. But we've seen that, you know, natural was a very difficult term to define and to defend in the courts. We saw uh, federal court cases around, you know, is this product really natural, this and that. But, um, you know, some of the same things could probably be said about sustainability and, and sustainable claims. Uh, consumers aren't really exactly sure what that might mean from one company or one product to the next, but they are um, very interested in supporting brands that are moving in that direction. So it's clear that consumers want products they can feel good about buying and using, and companies are working to deliver accordingly, but it can be difficult to parse out and predict exactly what sustainability measures are going to resonate with what consumers. Um, you see various quotes out there to this effect that uh, sustainable 
isn't a destination, but a journey. So I think companies are trying to uh, approach sustainability um, from their strengths and um, trying to find programs that align with their interests and with their particular, you know, sort of brand DNA and their audience. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at consumer driven sustainability because as consumers, we want to feel good about the products that we're buying, but there's only so much we're willing to sacrifice because we want products that make less waste, but we also want ease of disposability and we don't want to have to jump through hoops to recycle products. And instead, we value convenience and ease of use, which is a generally new idea since about the 50s or 60s. And it comes down to this idea that in order for businesses to truly become sustainable, consumer habits also need to change. And we need to reverse almost 75 years of this pattern of product packaging being made solely for disposability and convenience. Now, you make some great points there, Hannah. It's, um, I think, and built into that is, yeah, the, I think the reality that there aren't always solutions, that there are trade-offs, right? And so um, you kind of shift things around rather than finding some solution that sort of just uh, clears everything up. But I think a good example is microplastic, actually. And we were going to get into this a little bit later, but, you know, it's worth mentioning microplastic is one of those things that obviously nobody likes the idea of microplastic accumulating around the world. Um, but you know, and you also you have the EU right now that's that's working to uh, ban microplastic in cosmetic products. We, we've been expecting um, some sort of update on that. Um, I know that industry is still sort of trying to negotiate some derogations there, um, but you know we haven't seen any signal that that isn't going to go forward. So if microplastic is uh, banned in cosmetics in the EU, we definitely know that you know companies are going to have to shell out a lot of money in order to reformulate products that there aren't necessarily alternatives out there and so forth. It's a problem for, for industry. But I also think the piece that really hasn't been, I think, talked about as much, especially in like a public domain, is the fact that, you know, microplastic is, is in a lot of products. And, you know, the idea that everybody's going to say, yes, microplastic, get it out of cosmetics, but does everybody really understand what it's doing in these products? And are you willing to sacrifice some of the product diversity and product functionality um, and the product effects, the product feel, all these things um, in order to eliminate um, microplastic from cosmetics when, you know, if you look at that, it's a very, very, very small percentage of sort of the targeted plastic emissions in that uh, ban proposal in the EU. So, you know, uh, we've been trying to find somebody who can speak a little bit more to exactly what consumers would be giving up there. But I think it get back, it gets back to to your point, you know, about the fact that um, consumers want these things, but, um, you know, we have to sort of be willing to compromise and, and make some sacrifices along the way. <laughs> yeah, we consumers are a fickle bunch, but obviously consumers are not the only drivers of sustainability. So what other players are a part of the push? Yeah, sure. So we should mention um, retailers because we see increasingly that, um, you know, the big retailers are trying to increase the sustainability uh, of their offering. Again, you saw this happening with, you know, natural and organic um, 10 years ago or more uh, where everybody's making those claims, but, you know, they weren't everybody's idea of what was natural, what was organic wasn't quite uh, the same. So you had sort of an uneven playing field for industry and you had the greenwashing, you know, on the consumer facing end. And so retailers got involved and started implementing programs to, you know, require certification to some internal or external standard in order to claim things like uh, organic or made with organic, things like that. Um, so you're kind of starting to see the same thing in, in, in big retailers now, like, um, 
well, Amazon recently expanded its private label portfolio uh, with the rollout of Amazon Aware, which is like uh, an everyday essentials collection of skincare, home apparel items, and it's all certified uh, to Amazon's Climate Pledge Friendly Program. And of course, uh, you know, if you want to sell on Amazon, uh, I suppose it, it probably is, is, you know, can be beneficial to have that certification yourself, because I think you're getting some, uh, probably some better placement, um, some better promotion uh, if you do so. So there's that pressure. You have uh, Ulta's Conscious Beauty platform, which uh, they launched during the pandemic. Um, and we reported that, yeah, it's grown to like 270 brands certified across five pillars, clean ingredients, cruelty-free, vegan, sustainable packaging, positive impact. Um, and so again, you know, if, if you want to uh, do well in, in, in Ulta stores and, and, you know, maybe have some, um, some really nice prominent placement in the store, um, you know, I, I can imagine that there's a lot of pressure to conform to that standard and to demonstrate uh, sustainability along those lines. So, you know, increasingly, if you want to work with these retailers and, and, and you want to do well in their stores, you, you just absolutely have to be thinking about your products and your businesses, environmental impacts, uh, if not, you know, complying or, or certifying to these standards that are being uh, established. Um, this is a big piece, too, that I don't think, you know, maybe doesn't get as much attention, but it also, you know, makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have also, if you want to hire, you know, young people, um, if you look at the workforce and employees, I think there was a, a, an IBM, um, their research arm uh, had a study last year and uh, said that 71% of job seekers surveyed wanted to work for an environmentally sustainable company after the pandemic. Uh, more than two thirds of potential workforce respondents in that study were more likely to apply for and accept jobs with environmental and sustainable, uh, sustainable or socially responsible um, aspects to them. Uh, and it said that, you know, this is IBM study, nearly half surveyed would accept a lower salary to work for such organizations. So, I mean, if that is telling of what um, young people are looking for in where they want to work, um, there's obviously a lot of pressure on companies um, if they want to keep talent and if they want to bring in more talent to be paying attention to their sustainability programs uh, and how they're faring on that front. That's a really interesting study. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense to me because I've observed this increased and heightened social consciousness and awareness about climate change since the beginning of the pandemic. I was just going to say, yeah, no, that's really interesting because you can also read up on like why that happened during the, the, the pandemic, like with everybody in lockdown. And, and you would think, you know, if you're accepting that like, you know, COVID was something that sprang out of the woods from a bat to, to a meat market and so forth, that you would be maybe, you know, a little bit a little bit uh, peeved at nature and the environment for, for, you know, inflicting this thing upon us. But actually I think people, yeah, really started to think more about like, you know, the fragility of our experience and so forth. And that things maybe, you know, are a little bit more susceptible um, to upheaval than they had thought before and, and started paying attention to the environment. I think it was about people started accumulating a lot more waste too when they're at home um, you know, you're constantly getting deliveries and you're unpacking boxes and breaking those down, putting them out. And you're, I think, you know, my recycling thing was always overflowing to the point where I'm like, you know, this is this really all going to be dealt with? <laughs> so, I mean, I think we saw that, you know, we were creating, it was very easy to see at that time how much waste you're creating, just one household. And, and I think other things, you know, people weren't going to work as much. 
so you know they weren't commuting and and there were some cities that you know had a very appreciable sort of uh change in like air quality because nobody was going to work um so there's all these interesting factors that yeah contributed to this but because in some ways you're like you know why necessarily would everyone become so more social or environmentally conscious during this uh covid lockdown but um i guess those are some of the uh some of the thoughts i've seen that are out there yeah i was also going to bring up the noticeable change in air quality that some people saw in you know different parts of the world when they weren't able to go to work or really leave the house and it was drastic in some areas but you know going back to the drivers of sustainability um outside of businesses consumers and companies potentially losing talent um what role does policy play in sustainability efforts within the beauty industry in the US much of the movement in recent years um with regard to environmental sustainability um was about ingredients with potential negative impacts on the environment uh, and this I think it was was at the end of 2015 when um, the Microbead Free Waters Act uh, was signed into law. I think it was end of 2015. Um, that was signed into law, and that eliminated um, plastic microbeads from like cleansing and scrubbing cosmetics that are rinsed off, right? That so go like right down, right down the drain, and and you know you can imagine escape uh, water treatment plants and then end up in our natural bodies of water you know that was one of the first i think examples of sustainability uh or environmental you know big impact environmental legislation directly sort of focused on on cosmetics uh, and their impacts but um you also then saw you started to see the uv filters um where we're talking about oxybenzone and was it octocrylene um that are the uv filters that have been linked in research to you know detrimental coral impacts um, so you started to see legislation around that, uh, Hawaii banned those ingredients from sunscreen sold in the state. So I think that was the next sort of big surge in terms of, uh, environmental legislation, uh, facing cosmetics. Um, now increasingly we see stuff about, uh, PFAS. I'm not going to get this right. That's per and poly alkyl substances. Yeah. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Uh, it's, it's. PFAS, I think, is what everybody knows them as, and those are the quote-unquote forever chemicals that, um, you know, are, are, have a reputation for not breaking down in the environment. Um, now, of course, there's like thousands of those, and we don't know, uh, you know, everything about all of those thousands of ingredients, but they do seem to have some common features that are problematic um, or are interpreted as such, and, and that's what's driving a lot of legislation these days. California already banned a number of those with its, um, what was that, the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act, which was, I don't know, these years are going by now. Was it, 20, was it last year or 2020? Yeah, it was passed in 2020. But anyway, you know, they already banned a number of those PFAS with uh, legislation they put through, and um, now they're trying to do away with the rest of them in cosmetics, I mean. So um, that would be deliberate use of, of PFAS, and then there's a separate question of whether or not uh, those chemicals are you know, just contaminating products at a much smaller level, but uh, from like leaching from packaging or coming off of uh, manufacturing equipment. But in any event, people don't want them in the environment. They don't want them in, in uh, the human body. So that's the sort of legislation we're seeing now. Um, so again, yeah, those are, those are sort of like, that's kind of where I think everything started, but now more and more we're seeing uh, legislation that is looking at, for example, uh, environmental claims on products to, again, address some of the 
maybe uneven competition and and um, greenwashing, whatever you want to call it, um, where you're claiming the packaging is recyclable and maybe it's it, it is you know through some extraordinary means, but not through just like throwing it out you know in your in your bin for the for the uh, at the curbside. Recycled content claims, compostable. We're also seeing extended pro producer responsibility bills. Uh, two passed that we know of in 2021 in Maine and Oregon uh, that have bearing on, on cosmetics companies. Um, I think there's similar bills now proposed in California, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, um, and now in New Jersey and Hawaii, I think also. But um, these kind of differ from one to the next, and which is why it's a problem. I mean, it's, it's coming up in all the states, and then you have this issue of, of you know, national uniformity or lack thereof, where you know, you have to comply with different rules that uh, across a dozen different states, it's just absolutely not workable for, for industry. Um, so that's kind of a, that's, that's an issue. Um, I guess it would be solved by federal legislation, but um, I know that the, the legislation is not at the state level. It has some big companies that support it, um, but small businesses are still concerned. Uh, it's essentially a company under these EPR, extended producer responsibility bills, has to sort of like pay into a, a, a stewardship program, which then sort of recovers and, and recycles their packaging. Um, so you kind of have to pay in or, or I don't know, I guess you don't do business in the state. Um, so some of the big players are, are kind of saying, okay, yeah, we can get behind that. Um, but, you know, smaller companies are a little concerned and especially concerned about, like I said, trying to meet the requirements in, you know, a number of states and, and keeping all of those requirements straight and having all the right paperwork and, and whatever else. And is that like, you know, you're paying for it across every state that, that introduces one of these programs? I mean, it seems like that could get pretty costly, too. Um, so, again, maybe there'll be like a federal legislative solution here. But um, right now that's going on. And uh, should I talk about the EU? I'll talk about the EU a little bit. There's, there's, so, I mean, I think you have to, because I mean, you, you see a broad sustainability movement in uh, the European Union under the Green Deal, um, which is sort of the, the, the EU's vision for achieving climate neutrality by 2050 um, and really transforming the economy to make it, uh, you know, green and, and, and sustainable. Uh, it's, it's a huge, I mean, undertaking. And then, you know, you're basically looking for various guidances and, and implementing acts and um, other instruments that are going to have to be put in place in order to sort of realize the Green Deal's objectives. Um, so far, we, we do have the chemical strategy for sustainability, which came out of that, um, which, you know, we've covered fairly extensively at HPW Insight, uh, but it just raises a lot of concerns about, um, you know, how the block is going to move forward. Um, you know, the why of the Green Deal might be sort of self-explanatory, um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure some would still debate its virtues, but certainly the how is still very much in need of clarification from industry standpoint. Um, you know, yes, we'd all like to get to this place, but exactly how is that going to happen, I think is where industry is sort of, you know, that's their standpoint at this at this stage. We'll have to be watching for what comes out of the uh, the Green Deal and, and how the uh, chemical strategy sort of plays out. Um, but that's a big one. And also in the EU, what, what I've already mentioned, the microplastic um, ban that is under consideration is 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 a big deal, very big deal. And I don't think it really necessarily gets um, the coverage it deserves. I mean, we've we've covered it a lot, but um, 
you know, you do see headlines all the time now about like, you know, microplastic. Uh, I think the latest was about microplastics in human blood or the placenta, pregnant women. Uh, it's like on the, you know, the remotest corners of the world, you can find microplastic, the highest mountaintops, it's raining down from the heavens. It's everywhere. And, and that's not like a, a, a cozy, you know, sort of uh, thought for anybody. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, we'll see how they go forward. I mean, we're seeing the EU wants to get it out of cosmetics, all cosmetics. So that's not just those, you know, microbeads and scrubbing and cleansing, uh, rinse off cosmetics. It's, it's leave on. And uh, I certainly didn't know, you know, how much microplastic is. It's very, very small amounts, but it does figure in a, in a lot of products. So um, industry is working to get some derogations there I mentioned. So they'd like to basically exempt uh, face, lip and nail products um you know demonstrating that most of those are you know you kind of take them off with like a tissue or, or you know some sort of removal cloth or whatever and then you kind of throw it away it's not something that really it doesn't necessarily you know go right down a drain into into bodies of water um so they seem to have a case there but I, they haven't made um any noticeable anyway um uh you know headway there um that we can see, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So we'll see how that plays out. But now you also have um, microplastic bans being proposed at the state level in the US. So California has one. Um, and, uh, you know, if that just sneaks through, I mean, we're talking about industry has talked about thousands, I mean, 15,000 to 30,000, I forget what it was, but something in that range of, of products that would need to be reformulated. That's in Europe. Um, you know, the costs are, are very significant. Um, it's, I think they constitute about, cosmetics constitute about like, it's like 2% or something like that of the overall emissions that are being targeted, but cosmetics industry would have to pay for like 90% of the overall cost of this thing. So it's, it really falls on the cosmetic, cosmetics industry hard. Um, and now, you know, like I said, these same kind of proposals are coming up at the state level uh, in the US. Um, so that's certainly something to keep an eye on. We're certainly seeing innovation away from microplastic, but um, and we're, we've been reporting on those with, with some interest. But you know, um, I think there's still questions about whether or not they, you know, are, are quite doing the same things that the microplastic ingredients were doing. Um, if they provide the same functionality, performance, and so forth, um, and you know, if they can be, be produced at scale in order to replace all the microplastics that's being right, used right now by the cosmetics industry. Um, Again, yeah, th these are some of the um, outstanding questions around this stuff. So I didn't really know about these exemptions, but I think they're very interesting because just speaking for myself, someone who wears makeup, for instance, something that I've been trying to do to use less um, makeup wipes and less disposable makeup removal products is I try to use reusable cotton pads and um, so I guess they're not cotton, they're like fabric pads, um, as well as different face washes that are oil-based to remove makeup. Um, so a lot of that does end up going into a water source. Uh, like, you know, I throw the makeup pads into the washer um, and, you know, I use the face wash, which goes down the drain. And, you know, my impact as an individual consumer is not as big as, you know, some companies have, but it is something that maybe they need to consider in this law um, that includes these exemptions. I hadn't thought about that, but you should be a, um, a, a witness testifying before some of these uh, bodies that are making these decisions, I think, on industry's behalf, because, I mean, there's certainly, you know, um, 
I think they have a really good argument. I mean, for, you know, do we need to go this fast in this area? I mean, cosmetics does get, I think, it's seen as low hanging fruit often. That's sort of like the term that's used. And, and so, you know, people are like, let's just, let's just get this stuff out of cosmetics. Um, and to some extent, you know, even, even if cosmetics aren't like the big problems here, I mean, like, you know, microplastics in waterways are coming from coming in much larger volumes from other sources, not cosmetics. You know, it's like tire deterioration and, and um, you know, I don't know if there's, I think there's microplastics even used in things that are used for agriculture and running off and so forth. Um, uh, textiles are a big problem. So every time you wash something, right, there's little microplastic fibers in like so much of what we own um, that are, you know, going right down the drain and, and they sometimes escape or often always, I don't know, escape filtration in like water treatment systems. But, um, you know, so there's these very heavy contributors to the problem, but they're just harder to deal with. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of like, well, let's just take care of cosmetics because that one's a little easier. We can just, you know, say they're banned and you have to just conform. But I mean, it's, it's a huge investment that industry has to make. It really is a big disruption because, you know, I, I, you have to assume that some companies are going to be in a position to respond to this better than others. Um, you know, if you want to support small business, for example, like, you know, do you, do you put something like this uh, on them? Um, as much as you do the, the larger guys, but of course, the larger guys have more products that they have to deal with and, and they're distributed more widely. So it, it's really uh, quite an undertaking going on with the microplastic stuff. Um, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. But yeah, the, these bills starting to crop up in the US. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if everybody's sort of, it probably deserves some uh, a stronger spotlight on some of these because you could see them just sailing through a, legis a legislature without even, you know, um, getting the attention they really deserve to understand just, just how impactful this stuff is going to be on uh, the cosmetics industry. Okay, so now that we've covered kind of the landscape of legislation going on in the U.S. and the EU, can you talk about some of the main focus areas for companies who have these existing sustainability efforts going on already? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it, you're gonna, it's going to be difficult for you to find a company, I think, in the beauty space uh, these days. And of course, you know, cosmetics, we're talking about, you know, makeup, skincare, hair care, uh, you know, the nail stuff. I mean, the whole spectrum. But I mean, you find a company, it's, you almost have to have something going on, right? You have to have some kind of program at some scale. Even if you're just starting out, you've got to be sort of exploring these, these uh, avenues. So, you know, I think the biggest things that have been identified by industry or by the trade groups that we speak with um, as sort of like the focus areas for companies are, are things that are sort of like immediately consumer facing, you know, the packaging, right? Everybody's aware of packaging. Um, when you buy a product, the packaging is, is very apparent and it's, you know, one of the first things you see and relate to. So um, making packaging, you know, more recyclable, or using post-consumer recycled materials in packaging, seeing a lot of initiatives along those lines. Um, some are, you know, doing away with plastic and packaging and exploring, you know, paper options. Uh, others are teaming with companies like TerraCycle and other programs to access post-consumer recycled content or to enable recycling of packaging components that normally can't be recycled through, you know, normal curbside programs. Um, we're also seeing refills Refills more and more. I mean, I'm kind of curious as to, I haven't looked at research to see just how those are doing, but you know, uh, in other words, 
often, often in the bathroom, you're replacing products, right. That are, they come in a plastic bottle, whether it's, you know, soap or, or shampoos or, or uh, you're also seeing deodorants, um, products like that. A lot of that sort of the, the personal care in the bath kind of situation you're seeing, the packaging transform in that, you know, they're giving you something that's more like permanent, right? They give you the sort of an elegant container that is supposed to sit there and look, you know, nice in your bathroom. And then you just go and buy the sort of refill inserts and use those. And so you're not throwing away one of those big bottles, plastic bottles, you know, every time you replace your, your soap or shampoo or deodorant or whatever. Scanning the news, you can see that stuff popping up all the time. Yeah. I mean, as a consumer, I'm definitely seeing it. And then just to kind of tie this into consumer health, we are seeing a lot of companies who are focusing on more sustainable packaging because it's honestly harder for OTC drug manufacturers to kind of substitute their ingredients for maybe more sustainable ones because for many of the products, the ingredient is the product. And actually, I should say all OTC drugs, you know, the active ingredient is the entire product. So we're seeing a lot of sustainability efforts in product packaging. You know, you get to consumer health items. We're seeing reusable vitamin bottles that are refillable to fully recyclable toothpaste tubes, for instance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So packaging in both spaces, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, unlike what you're saying as to the ingredients in like a OTC drug product, for example, um, you know, cosmetics are, cosmetic companies are paying more attention to sort of like, you know, at the ingredient level, um, where does their, you know, where do their ingredients come from? How are they sourced? What kind of labor along the way? Um, what, what is the impact on biodiversity or, you know, all of those things are, are sort of the, the ingredient story, right? Some, from, from like, you know, uh, from source to consumer, uh, companies are shining more light on that because there is interest in, from consumers in knowing um, where ingredients are coming from and kind of their environmental profiles. But, um, you know, as I was saying before, companies are just in different places in these programs. Um, multinationals like Unilever, for example, have really comprehensive programs addressing climate change. So that's, you know, reduced emissions targets, as well as packaging, waste, protection of biodiversity, deforestation-free aims, uh, sustainable crop harvesting. Uh, and then, of course, like social responsibility aspects, fair labor, fair labor equity, diversity, and inclusion-related targets. Um, but, uh, you know, it's such an umbrella term that means something different for everybody that... Um, there's also, I think, space right now anyway for companies to kind of find their own way and decide, you know, what kind of company are we? Where's maybe the, the most opportune areas that we can get into this? And, um, you know, what's affordable for us and what will sort of be meaningful for our particular customer base? Um, so everybody's kind of at different, different points in this journey. I really like that you brought up sustainability of not just you know, products and packaging, but also about labor because sustainability encompasses every aspect of what a company is doing and the products that they're putting out if they're um, a product-based company, which beauty and consumer health are. So I thought that was a really interesting point. And marketing this type of sustainability, you know, that's really comprehensive can be very popular because it really sets companies apart from the rest. 
But with everyone kind of rushing to promote their products and businesses as sustainable in line with consumer demand, we still see greenwashing as a really significant problem, which is when a company claims that it's environmentally conscious or sustainable, but it's only for marketing purposes and the company isn't making any noticeable sustainability efforts or ones that are actually, you know, doing something. So how would you say the beauty industry is combating greenwashing? Yeah, so there's a number of uh, initiatives going on right now that um, where you see companies coming together to uh, sort of address the issue of greenwashing. And, and of course, it's, well, you see a lot of the big companies, um, Shiseido, L'Oreal, LVMH, who else was in there? Um, they all formed this, uh, well, along with like the International Fragrance Association, the Fragrance Creators Association, um, they have formed this consortium called the Eco Beauty Score consortium where it's uh i think at this point 36 beauty and personal care companies uh, and industry associations that are focused on enabling consumer choice by developing a scoring system essentially for beauty and fragrance products environmental impacts so again this is sort of that that drive to standardize what sustainability means right um and and what it means to use certain sort of environmental claims so if you're communicating to consumers that you are sustainable along you know, lines X, Y, or Z, um, is everybody sort of uh, doing that in the same way, according to the same criteria, the same uh, rigorous sort of standards and so forth. Uh, so we'll see what comes with that. They, they've all bonded together and, um, you know, are welcoming new uh, participants, you know, to join in, I think. And, um, you know, I think that, that for some of these big players, you know, they don't want to be investing in sustainability only to have competitors making the same claims, but without the same investments and results. So I think that's what this is all about and to just provide greater transparency for consumers. So what do these claims actually mean and who is actually sort of, you know, uh, walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Uh, you see other labels and certification programs uh, popping up to cut down on greenwashing and to enable companies to show, you know, the sustainability of their products and promote them as such. Um, the EU eco label was recently made available to all cosmetic products. So it was uh, limited to a, a subset of cosmetics before. Oh, sorry, I guess it was just rinse off products before, but now it is also um, leave on products that can be certified to that label. Uh, and that looks at, you know, basically impacts on aquatic organisms, um, how biodegradable are your ingredients. Uh, you can't use certain hazardous substances and uh, you need to be using minimal, easy to recycle packaging. And I think those are the main factors that go into that EU eco label. But you see that's expanding as you can you know, imagine that more companies are trying to get into this you know, sort of certified space um, for environmental claims. And um, I think that those kinds of certifications can be helpful for sure. I don't think that they're you know, necessarily um, foolproof in terms of like avoiding what I wanted to get into here is basically, you know, there's a certain amount of risk to carrying environmental claims. Uh, I think one example is, you know, we're seeing some big beauty companies fighting litigation in U.S. courts uh, that alleges that they basically false, falsely advertise their products as clean and environmentally friendly, whereas in reality, they contain ingredient X. And most of the time we're seeing that's, that's the PFAS again. Um, and uh, so basically, if, if somebody tests your product 
because you've seen some of these basically an organization will test a bunch of cosmetic products and they'll find that uh, X percentage of them contain traces of PFAS. And um, then they basically, you know, publish that information and it's, it's shared around everywhere and everybody knows, and it's gotta be a bit of a reputational hit, probably damages business. But then you also have people piggybacking on that by just filing um, class actions saying, Hey, you say you're, you know, uh, an environmentally friendly, you know, pro environment company or whatever, but how do you explain having these PFAS, you know, traces in your products? Um, and that's false advertising and this and that. Um, and, you know, whether or not, you know, I don't know how sound these cases are, but they still are costly and, and will have you in court for years, you know? Um, so this is, there's a certain amount of risk uh, to making eco claims, um, and I imagine they're going to be challenged more and more in the courts, especially as some of these laws kind of uh, come together to, to, you know, standardize environmental claims. Um, but I, I suppose, you know, I would think that having certifications to things like, you know, Ecolabel or whatever the case may be would be helpful if you're going into one of those suits. If you're unfortunate enough to have to defend one, then, you know, being able to say, hey, look, you know, our claims are certified to this very distinguished and well-known uh uh, set of criteria, uh, I think you'd probably be better off. But, um, you know, you see company, big companies right now, Cody, Shiseido, um, you know, the, the usual targets when it comes to what the plaintiffs bar, you know, if they think they have a, a good case to be made, then, you know, they, they tend to target the big guys uh, with deep pockets. Uh, and you're seeing that happening right now. Uh, again, same thing that kind of happened in the natural space, making natural claims. You saw all the big multinationals with those big name brands. Uh, if they were saying something was all natural and it wasn't, you know, you saw some cases that really, uh, um, that they were fighting for years and did not have great outcomes for them. So we'll see how these new sort of uh, sustainability cases um, pan out. Definitely something we should keep an eye out for. So Ryan, thank you so much for your insights on this topic. Um, before we go though, I wanted to get your, your opinion, maybe some forward looking thoughts on some advancements that we should keep an eye out um, for in the beauty industry in terms of sustainability over the next few years. If you have some predictions maybe, or some thoughts considering the trends that we've seen so far. Sure, I'll do my best. I mean, I'm sure there are others who can answer this far. Uh better than, than I, but, um, you know, I really think that the, the one thing I'll focus on here is I think the biotech sector is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, you know, we've seen for years, there'd be sort of, uh, biotech entries and biotech news and biotech's kind of getting more into cosmetics. I think in years past, it was kind of like they were, you know, in drug development and, you know, they thought, well, why don't we also have sort of a, a line of cosmetics, you know, that uses some aspect of our technology and it, um, you know, we can market that, we can have some revenue and we put that toward our drug development programs. But I think we're seeing, you know, biotechs increasingly squarely interested in, you know, serving uh, cosmetics industry stakeholders. Um, and, um, you know, some really interesting stuff going on there. It, it's sort of, um, you know, basically what you're seeing with these biotech companies, you have organisms being engineered to convert feedstock. So it's like, sugarcane, for example, and sort of convert those to specialized molecules that, you know, are maybe identical to those found in nature or, uh, you know, do the job you're looking for them to do. Um, but they, you know, are sort of market is not having the same environmental cost. Like you're not, you know, you can create a molecule that you usually get from fields and fields and fields of plant X. Um, 
by doing it in these uh, environments where you have these sort of like microbes that have been engineered to build these these ingredients. Um, don't tell me, don't ask me to explain exactly how this works. It's sort of supernatural to me, but uh, we're trying to get a better sense of it. But uh, I mean, it's really interesting and it, it allows for some interesting claims um, in terms of, you know, reducing impact on sort of the environment. I think, I think there's a lot of sustainability claims being made from partnerships with biotechs uh, and by the biotechs themselves. Um, but it is, you know, it's interesting to see how consumers are going to sort of interact with biotechnology. Um, I mean, you've already seen like GMOs, for example, you know, I don't, I don't know what the latest polls are, but have never struck me as being all that popular with, with uh, the general population, uh, which is why you see all the non-GMO claims, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, here again in biotech, you're, you're engineering organisms I don't know if that's going to be what turns people off from it, but you know, again, it's it's a balancing act because you do have you have some very compelling sustainability arguments for this kind of technology, and they're making some really cool ingredients that, you know, can replace some of the more problematic and I mean environmentally problematic um, ingredients that have long been used in the industry. So you know, we wrote on a company recently, I think it was Sensogen. They're like a startup out of California, and they're doing. Um, they're putting expanding a portfolio of, of biotech based ingredients and one of them was like you know to replace like musk which is uh with a molecule that is closer to the natural molecule i guess they say or, or you know has some of the, the same properties of natural musk but which of course is animal derived and nobody wants that and they say it's better than sort of synthetic musks which have never really been um you know quite there as far as what formulators need is sort of some of the marketing story around this but um you know, it could be really interesting then to have, you know, these biotech uh, companies increasingly replacing, you know, ingredients that have sort of um, unfavorable or unpopular aspects about their sort of relationship with nature and the environment and replacing them with biotech alternatives. Um, and you also have companies that are saying, and not only are these, these biotech ingredients, you know, possibly more sustainable, but they're also um, kind of next level performance. I mean, I don't know, you know, we'll I think it'd be interesting to talk to companies about that because I think there's probably a higher cost associated with biotech ingredients um, versus, you know, traditional. Um, but, uh, but you know, some of the biotechs are saying, no, they're working better. They, they, they perform better than, than what has conventionally been used. Um, and uh, they have a great sustainability story. Um, and uh, so we'll see how that all plays out. But again, it's a space that has like a lot of sort of tension in it, different conflicts, and uh, it'll be interesting to see yeah, how the industry as a whole kind of takes to it. I think everybody's gotten got their hand in a little bit, you know, exploring those avenues, but we'll see what happens with them um, and, and how consumers take to this area. Yeah, I mean, I for one am super interested in these biotechnological advances and these kind of modified ingredients but I think that it's going to do it for today and for this episode. So thank you again, Ryan, for joining me, um, being the first person that I interview for the U.S.-based Over the Counter podcast. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the first episode of the U.S.-based Over the Counter podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, you can check out HBW Insight, a publication from Informa Pharma Intelligence. There, you can find any articles that we've mentioned in the podcast, as well as further articles that we've written on the subject. 
You can also find links to other Informa Pharma Intelligence podcasts. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening and be on the lookout for more over-the-counter U.S. episodes.